Hello and welcome to episode 109 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, let's see, what do we have on the old announcement list today? Well, for starters, and appropriate to our guests, as you'll see, I want to make sure to remind you that XT16 is coming up. Um, this is put on by our, some of our good friends over in, um, in England, uh, specifically some people at Juxt. Um, and so this is a conference, pretty cool conference. Uh, you should check it out at the, their website. That's juxt.pro, J-U-X-T.pro, and I'm sure you'll find uh, all the information you need there. So this is a little conference, little meaning small um, attendance. The, the tickets are limited, um, so you'll definitely want to get in on this um, before it's too late. Uh, and it's going to be held out in the countryside in Bedfordshire. Um, it sounds lovely. I've never been, but it certainly sounds like a really cool venue. And of course, with the people that are involved, I expect that this will be a, a top-notch uh, conference. So go ahead and check that out. And while we're talking about things over in uh, England, uh, there is a closure bridge happening in London. Oh, and I should mention that the, the XT16, that's October 6th in 2016. Uh, backing up from there a little bit, the closure bridge in London is going to be September 30th. Uh, through October 1st. Um, of course, you can find out about that and all Closure Bridges at the website closurebridge.org. Um, and of course, speaking of Closure Bridge, there's also one in Boston coming up. Uh, I went to school in Boston, love the area. Um, if you're in the area, you should consider um, checking out the Closure Bridge Boston that's happening October 14th and 15th. All of this is in 2016, of course. And uh, again, that's closurebridge.org for more information about that. Uh, finally, I'll mention that the Closure Conj Opportunity Grant application deadline is September 16th, and the CFP also closes on September 16th. So Closure Conj is coming up in Austin, Texas. That's going to be at the beginning of December. Uh, the, a couple important deadlines there around the Opportunity Grant applications and, of course, the CFP. So um, if you are considering participating in either of those, uh, you should uh, make sure that you do so before that deadline of September 16th. That'll do it for announcements, so we'll go ahead and go on to episode 109 of the Cognicast. ready to go you ready to go i'm ready to go perfect all right well welcome everybody today is tuesday august 16th in 2016 and this is the cognicast and our guest today we are p very pleased to welcome to the show is francesco sardo also known to many on the internet as frankie sardo so welcome to the show frankie oh, thanks Craig. Um, i'm glad to be here uh, we are thrilled to have you, um, and we'll get into why in a minute, why we, we chose to have you on. That was uh, certainly an intentional and uh, a choice we're excited about. But before we do that, we do ask uh, you the question we ask every guest at the beginning of the show, a question about art. Specifically, the question um, is, what experience of art, whatever that means to you, would you like to share with us? And this could be anything from a book you read to a painting you saw to, hey, I saw a cloud that looked like a unicorn yesterday and it made me think of my childhood. <laughs> whatever whatever it means to you, uh, we, we hope that you have some experience, some artistic experience you'd like to share with us. Well, sure. So what I'd like to share is something that happened to me a couple of months ago while I was um, training. So I do train in martial art, um, specifically Tai Chi, which you know, is not the answer that uh, someone expect when you say a uh, training martial art, they uh, immediately think, you know, Kung Fu, spinning kicks and uh, punches with, you know, high pitch noise, uh, Bruce Lee style. But um, it can be a quite demanding martial art, especially to do all these slow movements uh, in a flowing and harmonious way. You need a certain degree of flexibility and strength. So... Every Saturday, we, we train with uh, other students here in London with the uh, head teacher of our school um, for a full day you know, with quite intense um, training boot camp style. And, and that particular day, it was more intense than usual. And our head teacher was uh, pushing us quite a lot. And it was surprisingly hot for London standards. So... You know, about 35 degrees, so we are all sweating, all uh, sore from the training. And 
you know, the morning ends and we were having a little break, having some, some tea and some nibbles uh, before the afternoon session. And um, so we slowly walk back in into the gym, you know, one by one, uh, feeling a little bit what was going to happen in the <laughs> afternoon session. And, uh, you know, well, but what we saw was a little bit surprising. So our teacher, you know, instead of being on the podium and then looking at us, uh, and, you know, it can be quite intimidating. It's, it's a big man and he's done a lot of martial arts, so it can be quite intimidating. Uh, it was just sitting in a corner reading a newspaper and uh, a music, something like, you know, Frank Sinatra or uh, some kind of music like that, very soothing, very calming, was playing uh, in the gym. So all the students, one by one, start to walk into the gym. They do uh, their stretches, their warm-ups to, to be ready for the afternoon. And, and I have to say, I'm, I'm really uh, lucky to be training with them because they are all way above my level. They, they, they move in a fantastic way, each one of them. It's, you know, they're very skilled uh, martial artists and uh, the way they move, it, it can be mesmerized when you can just sit down and look at them for, for hours. And so you see all these students one by one coming in and starting doing some stretches. And I was in the, you know, at the back of the room uh, doing some stretches as well. And you know, all this side of these students uh, reawakening their bodies uh, after all that training and the teacher at the end of the room and the music and, and the warmth uh, in the room. It was just a beautiful sight, a beautiful uh, synesthetic experience. And, and I realized that you know, that was... Uh, what we needed. So our teacher you know, sort of like designed that experience for us because that's what we needed after an intense training. And, and sure, you know, it, it was beautiful and it was even more beautiful because it didn't last long. And then <laughs> after a couple of minutes, we were back training and sweating again. But uh, I really severed that, that moment um, during that day. I love that story. That's so interesting. And I, and I think, uh, thinking back, I believe you're the first person to share a martial art, but um, uh, that, that's fantastic. I mean, uh, it certainly fits with my definition of art, which is, you know, an experience or, or object that is intended to evoke some emotion. I don't propose that as a universal um, description, but it, it, it is one that I use. And, and clearly, um, that, that experience had that effect on you. And your, your description as well was also very evocative for me. So that's a really cool story. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> All right. Well, that's awesome. Um, uh, and I'm sure, actually, I, would, I have a bunch of questions for you about Tai Chi. But maybe we will turn to uh, technical things um, uh, for a while first. Perhaps we'll come back to the sure. to the question of Tai Chi. So you you describe yourself as a full stack uh, <laughs> developer, which I think is a really interesting thing to be right now and to be in the space that you and I spend most of our time in technically, at least I assume you spend most of your time there. I certainly do. Namely the closure stack, right? Like we have this set of technologies. And I think they really facilitate, um, uh, you know, spanning front end and back end uh, in a way that um, the technologies that I personally have used historically have not, right? When I started out, I was a C++ developer and browser apps didn't really exist. But if they did, you certainly weren't writing them in in C++. And later, the same was true for C Sharp. So uh, anyway, I just wondered whether you could speak a little bit to that whole concept of full stack and your experience of full stack, because I, I sense by looking at... Um, you know your 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 various piece, places around the internet that you have you have some thoughts there. So I I wonder if you would share with us those. Yeah, sure. So I, I think not many people like to define themselves full stack, uh, but I, I believe full stack for me is I can do damages all across the stack. That <laughs> uh, it's like you know that that's how I like to think that my contribution could be you know. Uh, all across from, from the browser to the server to database migration to setting up microservices. Um, that's, you know, in, in an ideal day, especially in uh, where I was working before, um, if you could follow a story, like a business case, or, you know, ticket in Jira from the beginning to the end. So you have the usual case of, oh, let's add a button uh, in the user interface that when you click it does something. And, and then the button needs you know, to change the server for the API call, that needs a new parameter in the database, that needs a redeployment, that needs 
you know, some sort of other configuration. And, you know, in some type of teams, uh, you will only care of adding, you know, the button and the behavior around the button and then, uh, you know, pass the ball to another team and let them take care of it. Um, where we were working before, it was an all-closure team, and uh, we did uh, quite an you know, impressive amount of work uh, with a very small team for quite a big project. It was for probably the first time where we could see a story uh, growing and completed from the beginning to the end. And so we had like full knowledge of you know, all the edge cases, all the implication, and we had... Um, I think the uh, clear vision of where was most effective the change. If, if, it's, if it's a story that starts as a you know, user interface change, then I don't know, probably the user interface person that picks it up tries to make it you know, as good as possible for his domain. And then if it's more complicated in other domains, it doesn't really uh, matter. Or if it matters, then he has to go all the cycle uh, back to him to, you know, to modify something and to readjust something in the code that he wrote. Uh, but if you own the story across the entire stack, then you'll be much more effective in making the exact change that, uh, no, that that's the most um, you know, profound impact and most uh, delivers the uh, say best value for the business. And that's what we, I think we managed to accomplish in a full closure team. So we were doing closure and JavaScript at the at, you know, at the time, and then we started to migrate towards ClojureScript. Um, but that was certainly the, I don't know, most challenging and most uh, interesting experience in my uh, career time. And so everywhere I went after that, I tried to um, mix the roles um, that I was taking in, in within the company and try to do a little bit of everything to, to get a knowledge of the business uh, 360 degrees, let's say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I know I've certainly had the experience uh, where when I'm designing a system, um, I really like to look at it from all angles, right? Like I think there's a there's a one school of thought that says, well, you build it up, right? You start with a data model. And then from that, you build a set of services that expose it. And then from that, you build a UI. But I, I think that, um, y you know, the UI actually informs a lot of times the data model and vice versa. Mm -hmm, exactly. um, and so I, I, I like that idea that uh, when you're working on something, the, the more visibility you have across the system. And in your example, that takes the form um, of a story, right? Like it's kind of a, a complementary or, you know, one expression of that, that design aesthetic is, you know, mm -hmm. there's a story, a story that comes in. I like that idea that um, the more visibility you have across the system, the better you're able to make decisions at all levels. Um, I wonder though, like, so as, as you've tried to take that, um, approach, have you encountered any challenges? So I, I myself have been spending more and more time lately with closure script, um, and in the browser and mm -hmm. I don't consider myself an expert there. Like, uh, you know, I would not, I would not be happy being put in a position where someone said, Oh, we've got this, this guy, he's, he's a total expert on <laughs> browser based systems. Like I might be, no, that's not really me. My expertise is elsewhere, but I still can play in that area, and I think it makes me more literate. But I, I wonder whether, as you've, you know, attempted to broaden your horizons, attempted to take that wide view, whether you've discovered any challenges or trade-offs in it. Because you know, I mean, I think one of the other primary rules of design is everything's a trade-off, right? You're always giving oh, yeah. something to get something. So, what what do you think those are in that arena? No, what you said, I think it's, it's really true. Like if you work all across the stack, then you're giving away depth for breadth of knowledge. Like you, you can't be you know, as uh, effective in doing you know, some UI changes uh, as someone who's only very specific in doing you know, beautiful UIs and beautiful animations. And I think in the best of words, uh, and sometimes it did happen, like you will pair and you will have someone in, in, in the team with... Uh, let's say some bias towards I don't know user interface or you know, database uh, let's say management you know someone really experienced with Datomic and someone really experienced with ClojureScript and someone really experienced in, in microservices and you know if someone has uh, let's say um, yeah bias or 
um, more affinity towards a certain part of the uh, of the application, then it will also have more you know, energy and happiness to share that knowledge across the team, and it, it will be a pleasure to to pair with uh, with that specific person in that area, and it will give you the best tips uh, on how to get started, how to get you know, the correct design of a single page closure script application, for example. Uh, but that in that's the ideal world. Sometimes it, it does not happen, but I think it's still, you know, it, it's still interesting to expose yourself um, to this area, even for for a, a little while. Otherwise, you will get. You know, the tendency is do only the things that you know you can do all the time because. Now, that's how you spend your day. And if, if you're in the, you know, in the microservices space, then you just create a new microservice and you have your Langan template that will get you up to speed in five minutes and you sort of like enjoy it and you're uh, very fast at doing them. So uh, there is this uh, tendency of fast system that consume you know, uh, a lot of work to be given even more work. So if you're a, a very fast ClojureScript developer, then you will get more ClojureScript work and you never have time to um, dip your toes in you know, what's what's behind um, the server and the databases and whatever you know Amazon architecture and messaging passing uh, your uh, you know your um, your business is doing. So it, it's nice sometimes to uh, step back a little bit from what you do usually and take a look around. And probably because of your past experience in certain areas, you will you will see things. Uh, in a way that people that are deep in that space don't see. Mm. And certainly like, the fact that it's the same language uh, all across the stack, like, ideally if you're using ClojureScript, Clojure, and Atomic, uh, really helps you maybe not being you know, productive right, uh, right away, but at least understanding what's going on and, and reading the code and understanding uh, how the data flows through the system. So that's already a good, uh, good start. And you know, I, I will take you know, I, I'm slowing down the, um, the development of the system for spreading the knowledge of the system among the team uh, a little bit more as a compromise, uh, much more often because it's it's something that isn't done enough these days. I think so. That's surely uh, something that can improve in you know in the current philosophy of uh, many companies. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. It's actually an interesting variation on something that I honestly can't remember whether I've <laughs> shared on the show before. We've done, we've recorded something like 110 episodes now, so people will excuse me a little bit if I can't remember all of them. But um, so I like, there's a story I like to tell, or rather a question that goes at the end of a story. And so it's a theoretical situation. So Frankie, imagine that you're the, uh, you're the, the manager of a, of a team of, say, 10 developers. doesn't really matter. The number's not important. But you, you come into the office on Monday morning. And there's a there's a guy there, you know, slicked back hair in a ponytail, uh, you know, uh, sunglasses, a black suit. He's got like a cane with a silver top, and, and he, he looks kind of sinister. And he says, hey, how you doing? Uh, my name's Lucifer. Um, I'm the devil. And uh, I have taken away all of your developers and all of your source code. He says, now don't worry. Nobody's been hurt, right? In fact, they're, the, your developers are all on a tropical island somewhere enjoying, you know, fruity drinks with umbrellas in them. Nothing bad will ever happen to them. The, the thing that I've come to do is to, is to give you a choice, you the manager of this team. And the choice is this. I will either give you back all of your developers or all of your source code. But the other one, which, whichever one you choose, you'll be given that, but the other one you'll never see again. Mm -hmm. So you're either going to lose all of your developers or all of your source code. And the question that I've been enjoying asking people um, is, what do you do? Which, which one would you personally pick? So I'll, I'll put the question to you, Frankie. Which one would you pick to, to keep? Uh, that, that sounds easy, like the, the developers, right. for sure. <laughs> Isn't <laughs> because that... at that point, uh, it, it depends how old is the project. Because right. at that point, if it's, if it's old enough, then... Most people will like to rewrite the code base anyway. <laughs> so right. Right. it would be a good occasion to, to rewrite the entire code base. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a fascinating observation, and I, I totally agree with you. There, there are actually, having thought about this a bunch, I think there are 
one or two situations where you might actually choose to keep the code. For instance, mm -hmm. if, if you're deriving a huge amount of revenue from a system that's changing very little, then it may actually make business sense to hold onto the code and you would have time to hire a new team and to, and to build them up before the, um, the technical debt mm -hmm. or the, the bug fixes or whatever became critically uh, bad. But, but you know, for a lot of the projects that I've worked on, it, the vast majority, in fact, it would absolutely be the case that I would choose the same as you. And I find that observation really interesting, and it speaks to your comment, because it implies to me that the value of the system is not in the code, right? I mean, if, you, if you're given a choice between the two and you would pick the developers, well, the, clearly the developers are more valuable than the code, otherwise you wouldn't pick them. And so, you know, your observation about um, about building value in the team by by you know cross pollinating between the various disciplines, just just it fits right in with that, right? It's like, well, if that's valuable, then spreading it out more among the developers is putting more of that value into more of the team, and that's a, a useful thing. And, and so, um, so I guess that's a very very long setup for the question, which is what. Uh, have you seen any mechanisms or practices or or anything other than simply making an effort to do so that has been helpful in um, setting up to encourage that diffusion of knowledge or that cross-disciplinary practice or that? What what have you seen that's worked for, for making that happen? Well, I think, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of um, things imposed from, from above. Uh, you know, every time that there is... The, the mandate, you know, test coverage has to be 80% before committing code or, you know, each team has to deliver a touch talk every week to the other team. Uh, I haven't seen that working really well because, uh, you know, people don't like to have something imposed on them, especially technical people. You know. <laughs> I, I won't back this up with data, but I, I, I've seen technical people being uh, Someone like the worst when when someone says when someone tells them what they have to do, they like to discover their own you know answers. But um, I don't know. I, I I've seen it working when it comes from within the people. Like when when you choose people with a natural curiosity to uh, explore, and the best thing that you can do, I think, is to give them time to do that. So rather than um, keeping up the pressure in you know, delivering more and more. Know features or business values or story points or whatever uh, the metric you want to track is to you know if someone says oh I'd like to spend today to pair with I don't know, Samantha on doing this feature on the back end then you'd be like you should give them a thumbs up because that could be you know very valuable if if not right now then it will certainly pay off in the future and I think what you said is um, it's really you know in in time and in, and in the spirit of uh, what Michael uh, uh, Nigard, do I pronounce that well? Yeah, Mike Nigard, yep. Michael Nigard uh, was saying about you know, treating the code rather than, than an asset as a, a liability. Right. Uh, and you know, your real asset is, is the people that you surround uh, yourself with and their knowledge of the business domain. So if, if your knowledge is only limited to you know, what the, the UI should look like, then you have a, you know, you're not really valuable. If your knowledge is you know, uh, about what the purchase voucher um, feature should, should work in general for the company, then you are really valuable because you, you'll be able to implement it uh, yourself, even not maybe at the same um, quality level, but you know how it works and how it's supposed to work. Um, and, and you'll be able to respect it down and you, you will be able to explain it to a new member of the team. I've seen, it, you know, I've seen many times people joining the team and, um, you know, being coached for a couple of weeks and only being explained the segment of the, uh, of the domain that the person that they're working with uh, understands. Uh, it's hard to find people that know how things are supposed to work um, in general you know, regard, regardless of the implementation details, and and you know, and people that can explain that in words really well are even more rare. So, uh, if we can train people to be more like this, uh, I think you know, teams in general will will benefit from that. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I uh, as you're talking, I was thinking about things like um, 
And many of these ideas may exist or may be really terrible ideas, but I was thinking about things like, you know, you, you mentioned how we as an industry tend to resist imposition of uh, practices or metrics from, or from above, and I think that's true. But I think people still do respond to incentives, right? Maybe not explicit ones, but like if a system is set up to reward how many pull requests you create, mm-hmm. um, it'd be a terrible system, but but you will tend to make more pull requests. So I was wondering whether a system could be set up that would somehow inherently um, incent that behavior of diffusing knowledge. I mean, if you had a, maybe this isn't a very good idea or a very good way to do it, but if you had a metric that was, you know, look at all of the cards in your system and measure the number of people that would be required or the percentage of your team mm-hmm. that could implement the whole thing, right? And and track that number. Just as it, it would be an interesting number, whether it would lead to good results or have some unforeseen negative effect, I don't know. But, you know, if your average number was 10%, right? Like of all the cards in your system, most of them can only be worked on one out of every 10 people on your on your team versus mm-hmm. 90. Would that be an interesting metric and would it incent the type of um, behavior that you're talking about? It's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah, I think so. No, no, it, it's a very interesting topic and uh, it would be nice to think about this a little bit more because, yeah, that's, you know, whenever there is a game, then uh, people tend to optimize their behavior towards you know, winning the game. So if the game is uh, you know, giving rewards to opening pull requests, then there will certainly be you know, instant behavior to uh, you know, optimize their day-to-day work to, to do more pull requests. So it also needs to be a reliable system that it's not uh, so easy to, you know, to perverse in a sort of way. But um, yeah, definitely. And you know, even tracking for each story, how many people you require to um to to have completed or or also you know something interesting is um what if this key person uh takes a couple of weeks holiday then are we able to complete the story or how many you know from this pool of people we need in the office or we need available uh, in order to uh, not block the story so who are the the blockers uh, the holder of the of the, of the knowledge, uh, because certainly if, if you know two people are um, holding an entire stack, then they will they will paralyze uh, much of the organization if they take holidays together. And it's something that it's happening in in my current gig at the moment because it's it's much more of a vertical layering of teams. So those ops, those microservices, the server API, there's third-party integration, and then there's UI. So all the teams are stacked one on top of the other. And, and we've already seen the, um, the type of, of behavior that blocks you. And it's really, you know, apart from the cost of being blocked is, I don't know, psychologically, it doesn't feel good to you know, depend on something that is out of your control. I, I, I much rather prefer to know do something somewhere that I don't fully understand but at least I will make a mistake and I will pay for it but at least I'll, I've done something uh, rather than wait for someone else to do it for me and at the end of the day I will have learned something new and maybe you know if someone is available I'll, I'll ask for help and I'll, I'll, hopefully we will pair on um, on that particular feature but otherwise if no one is available then um, you should have the, the key to, to at least try and do something um, obviously, you know, I'm trying not to break everything, but, but if you don't trust the developer that, that work uh, with you and for you, then you, you'll be in trouble anyway. <laughs> yes, so. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, I mean, I'm, I'm far from an expert on these things, but I find your uh, your perspective fascinating, and I, I think I need to to think more about that for the, uh, the, the, the projects that I'm on, um, how I can better better uh, acquire the expertise and system knowledge other people have as well as to do a better job of um, spreading what system knowledge and expertise I have. Now, you know, I, I think, uh, so I know that you've, uh, you work with uh, our friends over at Juxt quite a bit as a consultant and, and you're in, in general, your work is uh, in the consulting realm, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> very happily. So <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And we, we like those guys a lot. Those uh, we, that's juxt as a company and and the individuals there are are, are friends of ours. So, um, but uh, so 
so you've done the consulting thing, and that's one of the interesting things about consulting, I think, is that it really does force you to confront knowledge transfer in a way that uh, when I was an employee wasn't quite as um, in my face, right? Because mm-hmm. the, the thing about consulting engagements is although some of them do go on for a very long time, there's this much more explicit understanding that they will end. Right. You hire yeah. consultants, yeah. they come in, and then they go away eventually, right? And hopefully after a long and fruitful or, or maybe a short and fruitful um, uh, you know, uh, effort. It depends mm-hmm. on the engagement. But, but you do have to think, like, what am I going to leave behind me? And that whole devil's question really comes into it, right? And so I think as consultants, we're always challenged to think about, well, how are we getting the knowledge out of our heads so that we don't take it with us when we, when we leave? And obviously documentation is a part of that. But, um, but I think the types of things you're talking about where – where we work together, where we spend time together are, are equally, if not more important. Would you agree? Yeah. And, and especially onboarding new people. So sometimes um, what we do, we juxtapose to bootstrap new projects uh, while you know, the company hires more permanent employees. So uh, that effort in bringing up the, the system from scratch and then, you know, suddenly you have a big complicated system and you have to uh, hand it over to someone else and and you have meanwhile having many people onboarded um, through the weeks and you know obviously you know you try to write a few lines of documentation but now and then but they are not you know you never document things enough and you know because you're moving at such a high speed then documentation get out of sync and all sorts of problems so uh, yeah I, I think you know we I know I personally didn't find anything more effective than trying to uh, work closely with uh, as many people as possible and um, talking a lot, paying a lot, and you know, even just encouraging everyone to try their hands on an area, uh, a new area, you know, from time to time. And if they get stuck, of course, uh, you know, raise, your, raise your hand, we'll, we'll come and help you. But that idea that you know, there's no sacred code uh, in the code base. Everything is up for for someone to open it up, modifying, and submit a pull request. And you know, no one should be touched about um, a particular feature or a particular area. No one owns uh, anything anywhere. Uh, you should be able to, you know, open up, you know, have as much access as possible. You know, for for security reason, but in general wide access is really preferable because otherwise you will feel you know always you know a bit frustrated when you when you have to ask other people to do things for you rather than just I don't know that's that's what I feel at least I like to uh, you know opening up code base change a few things run the test see that it broke something or what did it break and try to understand uh, how it works so I think you know especially with with a consultancy it's, it's a it's a great occasion to try your skills in, you know, in many different ways because each project is is so much different from the other, even though they, they might all be you know, closure projects. There's you know, such interesting requirements and such uh, you know, new way of solving problems. Also because closure and the ecosystem around closure moves so fast. So you know, in, in a year time, you would will, will like to try you know, something that, that came up just you know, recently. So that, that shapes... Uh, again, the way you approach certain problems. Uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, we would never have used, uh, I don't know, Ohm or Reagent, and now that seems like the, the obvious choice, and uh, it, it's a completely different way of, uh, of approaching a problem, and, and suddenly something that might have seemed very complicated becomes trivial, but, but obviously you have the challenges of understanding you know, a new tool set, a new way of doing things, and, and you're always learning, which is, I think, the, the best reward in itself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So, um, and this this drives me in a couple ways to something else I wanted to talk to you about. So we, we were talking about, you know, the value of spreading knowledge, and um, you mentioned uh, new tooling, um, new ideas, or at least ideas that are, that are that are new to you, even if the ideas themselves are old. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I came across when I was looking um, at your profile on the internet was that you you've been working a bit with spec lately. And I wondered, since it's a new thing that we're 
all new to um, specs specifically. Obviously, it's you know similar. The idea of contracts has been around for a long time, but but specs specifically, it looks like something you've had a chance to mess around with a little bit, or maybe even use in <laughs> anger. Um, I have been experimenting with it as well, but we're always interested to hear experience. I mean, it's not even out yet, really, right? It's part of closure yeah. one nine alpha, whatever. So um, I, I was I was relating this to somebody else too. Um, there was an amusing tweet. I, I'll try to find the citation for it some other time. But um, the day after Spec was announced, somebody posted a tweet that said, "Looking for uh, uh, closure engineer must have three years experience." Yeah, spec, right? you saw <laughs> yes. that one. So, um, so anyway, I guess what I'm asking you is a couple things. First of all, br- broadly, what's your experience been with uh, closure Spec? Maybe you're just getting started with it. That's fine. Um, and secondly, um, to the extent that you have used it. Do you think it's a valid tool or to what extent is it as a valid tool for for helping to create an understanding of the code base? Obviously, it's limited in some respects, but I'll let you speak to that y- yourself. So what what would you say to those two dimensions of closure spec? I would say that I wished I used it, uh, you know, a little bit more <laughs> to answer this question more <laughs> broadly. But yeah, I, I just um, use it a little bit, of course, because... Uh, everyone was curious when when it came out, and but I used obviously schema a lot. Mm. Um, I used it uh, especially for the um, you know Swagger integration, which I think is another uh, great tool. And you know that's also you know it, it was really useful for creating uh, web servers in general and having a defined you know schema for inbound and outbound responses. You know uh, before that. You know, anything before that was, yeah, you know, you look at it and it's like looking at people uh, doing the high jump before Fosbury. It's like, wow, it's a massive step forward. <laughs> and, um, yeah, obviously when Closure Spec came out, uh, I-, I wanted to try it out. And um, one little exercise, is, uh, exercise that, I, um, that I've implemented was trying to parse the pedestal routing syntax um, using closure spec. So I really like the fact that uh, closure spec has this powerful uh, vector specification and coercion. So you can uh, match certain things you know, in a vector, in a, in a sequence, and it will give you back a, a map um, trying to bind the things that it found in the vector to uh, key values in the return map which is exactly what um, pedestal routing uh, was doing while parsing um, the routes, you know, from the DSL to, you know, one of the pre-compiled uh, route formats. And it works brilliantly for that. You know, but one of the, the problems, especially when you have a vector as, or as a sequence as, a, as an input for your function, is um, specifying how this vector should look like. Especially if it's a, if it's a DSL, you can, you, know, you can write some some examples, you can write some... Uh, you know, checks and preconditions, but um, with closure spec, I really found that it's um, the way it describes what are the accepted input is really useful and really easy to understand. Um, so that, you know, that worked great. And once you basically write down what it should look like, then executing the, the, the um, um, spec calls it conform, so conforming the input to the specification uh, will give you back already the parsed um, tree, so the parsed nested vector if you have, a, for example, a recursive uh, specification without you writing any line of code that's just conforming an input to the spec and it already do that for you, which is another thing that I found that it's, uh, it's amazing. And obviously having test or check generation for that input and making sure that if you ever write any code that uh, changes uh, that input to something else, then you will get all this test generation for free, uh, which is another fantastic thing. But um, so far, I think my only complaint for the little that I looked at uh, closure spec, so uh, I might be completely wrong. you know that's that's the problem that I think every tool that I tried had that is the uh, understandability of error messages. Um, I think it's solvable in some ways because closure spec gives you um, data 
as a representation of an error with a path to the point in the spec where it found that error. So in theory, it should be uh, possible for you as a consumer uh, for the library to, to write something that um, unmystify that error that you receive from Chris spec. But, um, but yeah, I still have to you know, try my hands on that and see how easy it is. But I think you know, it's, it's a great addition and I'm, I'm, and I'm looking forward to, to use uh, more of it. I think in my current project, someone already started to use it, especially for um, the atomic uh, schemas and validation, which I think it's, you know, it's an error that many people uh, asked help for. And, and Crochet Spec um, surely you know, helps in that area, but um, I wouldn't know, you know, I wouldn't know much because I haven't um, tried my hands on it. Fair enough. Uh, that's still good insight. And you mentioned error messages, and it, it, it flashed through my head as you were saying that, it, that I think that one actually might be a function of uh, the fact that we don't, or at least I'm not aware of, good visualization uh, uh, techniques in Clojure. Like I, would, I personally would really like to have, more than almost anything as a feature, the ability to look at a piece of Clojure data in a visual way, right? Here's a vector mm-hmm. of 10,000 things in it. Show me items 900 through, you know, 1,000. And, you know, the third thing in that is a map of maps of vectors of with strings as keys and dates as values. And I'd like to be able to visualize that and drill through it. Mm-hmm. So that would be great. And then once you have, as we already do with closure spec, um, errors that talk about where that data varies from what we think it should look like at, and where that error is itself data, then I think that would combine really powerfully with the visualization tool to say, well, mm-hmm. this is what you got, and the pieces that I'm not expecting are red <laughs> or whatever. I think that would be great. So yeah, I, yeah. I think you know there's something like that in the in the shape of um, I think CLJ inspect or something like that in Emacs that lets you, you know, um, drill down into a data structure and um, it's sort of like walking through the path of an arbitrary data structure and then visualize it um, in, in quite a nice way. I don't know if you if you ever seen it. But, no, is that uh, is it part of CIDR or is it a standalone thing? I or? think so. I've been using Cursive recently, but um, as far as I remember, there's these, um, I think it's CIDR Inspector, Closure Inspector. I know there's a CIDR uh, Inspector. There's, a, mm. there's an old, old, old Closure Inspector that was from early on that hasn't quite risen to the level of what, uh, what I'd like to see. I mean, I'm, maybe I'm just under... Anyway, mm. those, those are all very interesting things, I think, that I will have to check yeah. out. But I want to I wanna, I wanna move on, though, because um, uh, one of the things that I'm interested in talking to you about is, uh, is uh, uh, XT16. So that's, oh, yeah, sure. that's coming up, and I, my understanding is you're speaking. And in fact, that's how we came to have you on the show is we said, oh, XT16 is coming up. Looks like a really cool conference put on again. It by is. Our, our, <laughs> yeah, right? And so it's put on by our friends at Juxt. And we actually uh, went to the organizers and said, uh, well, uh, do you think there's anybody um, that's speaking that um, would be good to have on the show? And they're like, well, probably everybody, but um, you know, we think Frankie would be awesome. Why don't you talk to him? So – um, so anyway, it's, it sounds you're speaking there. I'm I'm not incorrect in assuming that. In fact, I know I I know I saw your name on the list. What's your talk going to be about? Um, so I'm going to be uh, presenting a um, a small talk about um, the interactive app, de- uh, app development. So XT16 is a you know, it's quite a broad um, conference with you know, just new ideas in in software development. Uh, and it's organized by Jax in a way that um, tries not to be uh, specific about any particular language or topic or you know part of the um, you know framework or, or anything like that. It's just more you know new trends, new technologies that uh, we think they think it's it's good to share with a uh, with a broad audience and you know people from uh, other parts of the industry can. can can look at them and maybe be inspired by uh, what they see. And because I started as a, as a mobile app developer for a long time, um, when I first started using you know, ClojureScript with the with tooling that now we, um, we feel like, you know, it's part of our day-to-day job. We just, you know, we use a REPL, we use 
you know, fit wheel with instant code reload. We have, you know, amazing tool like, you know, dev cards that give us, you know, a view of our UI with, you know, many particular uh, stages all at once. And if I think about myself back in the days when I was doing mobile development and see this way of developing UIs, I will, you know, my mind will just be blown away. And and, and I think it's, it, it's our responsibility to share more of this thing uh, to other people working in uh, closely related fields, for example, mobile app development, and seeing and, and showing that there is this possible way of uh, developing code in your day-by-day activity. So one of the major challenges when, when you develop a, a native mobile app is, you know, is the usual uh, compile time of your, uh, of your app, packaging it up, sending it to a device, you know, clearing whatever local state or uh, app state that you have somewhere. I have to browse through uh, you know, the voucher confirmation page to see that it looks nice. And, oh, you discover there is a bug and you, you go back to your ID and do the process all over again. And, you know, we don't do that anymore. We, we have found that there are alternative ways of developing um, that, you know, they do not mean that uh, these other ways wrong, but it's just another uh, way of exploring um, the code that you develop that might help you in a in a very interactive, very fast feedback uh, with the with the interface with the app that you're writing. And uh, the talk is not aimed to you know show any uh, you know not much ClojureScript code or not convince anyone to to use ClojureScript, but just to see that there are um, these things that someone else is using. And hopefully you, you may want to try you know, ClojureScript on, on a um, mobile app development platform like you know, React Native or Cordova or implement something for your existing stack that enables you to develop in this you know, very fun and very interactive and very efficient way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny. I mean, I've been a Clojure programmer now for quite a few years. I was in a relatively early part of the, the adoption curve. And so I take a lot of that stuff for, for granted. I mean, until I'm yeah. confronted with it, you know, I'm like, Oh, I got to write a C sharp app. Oh, right. I don't have any of that. But, uh, I, what, so where are we at with that stuff in the, in the native? I mean, you, you talked a bit about the fact that these are great ideas and we'd like to bring them to make them available at least to all the other parts of the, the world, the programming world that don't have them. But where are, if I was writing a mobile app, let's say an Android app or an iOS app, to what, I don't follow that space at all. So to what extent <laughs> are those ideas available now? Um, maybe if I'm doing closure Script or, or maybe if I'm not, what's the state of the world there? So the state of the world is not, you know, like, the talk will sh- aim to show more of a possible world, but everything will work seamlessly, you know, smoothly and seamlessly, and the tools uh, won't break, and you'll have you know, this amazing experience of writing ClojureScript for you know your native mobile app, and uh, you, you you won't need you know to understand how native app development works. Uh, so the talk won't cover how exactly we are at in, you know, integrating ClojureScript for a, for a native mobile app. Mm-hmm. But uh, to, so as, as far as my understanding goes, because I, we implemented for uh, our previous client a mobile app, um, and we looked into React Native, for example, as, a, uh, as an option to reuse much of our um, ClojureScript code base and, and, and UI logic for um, uh, a native app. And we found at that moment in time, that was one year ago, that it was it wasn't ready yet. There was just too many. Uh, it was just you know bleeding, very bleeding edge, and you know, it was just too risky for us to to embrace that. So what we used instead was um, Cordova, which obviously does not strictly qualify as native app development because all it does is just it brings up a let's say a, a you know, browser view in your uh, in, in your device and runs JavaScript on that uh, on that browser. So what you see, you know, if you're a non-technical user, you see a UI, you see something that hopefully is as native feeling as possible, but it's just a you know a web page. 
But for our requirements at that time, that was that was more than enough, and it was something that you could you know you could install from the app store. Uh, if you you know if you have a particular UI branding that you might not even you know care about the native components, but on the plus side you have all um, the code reuse that you will have for you know for for the normal website that you that you would develop with uh, with ClojureScript and all the tooling that that I'll be mentioning, so you, you can repl into your mobile device and change some some state in the application and see it you know re-rendering instantly and and develop interactively with the with the application that you absolutely don't have for uh, native app development. For, so for our constraint back in that time, that worked wonder. And hopefully, you know, in the next future, um, I really hope that something like React Native um, takes off and that we can use ClojureScript on, you know, to build uh, native UIs. Uh, for mobile development, while keeping all the toolings that we're used to, and uh, being as productive as we we used to are on the um, web development and browser development. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that'd be very cool. Um, awesome. Well, that sounds like a really thought provoking talk. I'm. I'm. Uh, uh, do Do you know are the videos going to be available? I think so. So yeah, the the talk is what well, what I've tried to do. Hopefully, we, uh, if live coding goes well, otherwise, uh, I will have to resort <laughs> with some <laughs> backup videos. But you know, I will try to develop an app simultaneously for the browser, iOS, and Android, so all three screen uh, together. And that's something that you can do if you use uh, Cordova at the moment. And you know, that that's something that I think if you're serious about um, writing, you know, apps, uh, I know I, I envision a future where you have six, seven screens, you know, you, you have an, an, an iPad, an iPhone, and an Android tablet, an Android browser, an Android TV, and, and a web browser, you know, for you know, a full Thunderbolt monitor and a small web browser, and they all display the same page, and you do a change, and you see uh, all these windows uh, refreshing and rendering your UI for, you know, all possible formats for all possible uh, devices. And, and, I mean, why not? I mean, we can... And, and, and it's, it seems backward to, to just develop with, uh, you know, a small uh, device and doing your, you know, all, all, all your implementation of your UI there. And then after a couple of days testing it on other devices, obviously that there are some problems going back in the code, but you forgot what you were doing. Why, if we have the chance, then why not um, taking full opportunity of these, you know, instant um, code rendering on all possible platform and, and doing it interactively as you as you develop your app and seeing it re-rendering on all possible formats. Absolutely, and plus that would mean I would get to have the office where I've got, you know, an iPad and a full screen exactly. monitor and like sixteen <laughs> devices all on arms around me, and I'm floating in my hover chair. No, I'm 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 sorry, I'm I'm joking around, but I think your vision is uh, is an important uh, important and really interesting one. I'm uh, looking forward to catching the talk. Unfortunately, I won't be able to, to make it to London where the conference is, but. Uh, but if anyone out there is able to go, you should, because I think that's just one of the the many interesting talks that that all look worth going to. And I, and I like the um, your description too of the the conference as being something that is not specifically focused on, focused on a technology. I think those conferences are great. Obviously, we, we run a bunch of them in the form of EuroClosure, Closure Conge, and, and Closure West. But I also like. Um, conferences. This actually comes back to what you were talking about earlier, where you bring people from different parts of the application together, right? Like mm -hmm. that cross-disciplinary aspect, and having conferences like XT16, which reminds the way you describe it, reminds me of Strange Loop, which is another favorite of mine. I think is um, it's really, really fun and really thought-provoking, and it's just always a great time when you get um, smart people from different areas together and 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 share ideas. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there will be, you know, many talks from from other tracks that there will be even talks about, you know, uh, going beyond closure. So, you know, there, there will be some some debate that you maybe don't have when uh when you just have a closure team conference, then you'll have people just, you know, thumbing up uh, uh closure and saying, "Oh, <laughs> everything is good." But, you know, why not you know, be self-critic uh sometimes and see, you know, maybe share the experiences when things don't go that well and maybe get help from, from other people or other approaches from other languages. I think, you know, this has the additional uh, 
benefit of you know sharing approaches from from other languages and uh, you know other tools that that maybe you don't get when when you only follow a specific track or a, um, you know, a specific team for a conference. Yeah, totally agree. Both both things are super useful, and uh, that's yeah. I mean, I go to two conferences every year, and one of them is Closure Conj. And one of them is Strange Loop, and they are they're both the, the two sides of that coin. So I think it's a it's a great thing. Um, awesome. Well, um, uh, as I tell every guest, uh, you know, uh, I I have a list of questions that I wanted to ask, and I've certainly asked those, and you've your interesting comments have suggested several more. But um, but I also always like to make sure that we take time because I think the guests often have things that they want to say that I didn't think to ask. Sometimes they don't, and that's cool too. We always have you back on and, and talk about other things, but uh, but we like to leave time for that. Uh, so I don't know if there's anything that you uh, think we should cover today that we haven't. Uh, if so, now would be a, a great time to bring it up. I think I've covered everything I wanted to talk about. Awesome. <laughs> well, I certainly found it very, very interesting. Um, we we definitely have to have you back on it. If nothing else, I think uh, maybe next time I'll have to pick your brain a little bit more about uh, Tai Chi. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> I th- I just think it's a really cool um, thing, especially because I, I never realized uh, in- until some point that it is a martial art, right? Like these motions are actually the same motions that are used in the more um, I don't know what you would want to call it. There's fighting, like, yeah. yeah, fighting, right? It's They're a the fighting same. form at the end. Exactly. So, so I mean, just I guess to to cover this after all a little bit, mm-hmm. like when I was learning, I'm still learning, but at one point when I was learning to play uh, the bass, which is my main mm-hmm. instrument, um, you know, I I started investigating scales and I was doing scales, and then I saw a suggestion to try to play them slowly, and I mean really slowly, like forty beats a minute, thirty beats a minute, and it is so hard to do that stuff well and to also do it really, really. It's way harder to play most scales at, say, 30 beats a minute than it is to play it at 110 or something. Um, and so I, I just I think of Tai Chi when I think of that as like, you know, perfecting it and going slow and, and the effect that that has on, on your brain and the, and the difficulty oh, that it yeah. actually introduces. Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things that uh, they say is that Tai Chi slows... You know, slows down time so everything when you take a, a movement or a gesture that will take you know, a second to perform and you make it last longer then suddenly you, your brain has to fill that time with you know with something and, and instead of just performing a, a movement automatically you'll have to control you know, each part of the movement and you know you will start to feel that there are many muscles in your body and uh you know what i felt and you know i'm definitely a beginner compared to people that have spent a long time studying this thing and understanding this thing but my understanding so far is uh what you develop by moving slowly in that way is that you develop the small muscles the the subtle muscles that control the movement rather than the you know the big ones the crude one that can control i don't know a punch uh, you will actually try to, I don't know, make the punch start from you know back heel, travel through your through your leg, um, be controlled by the waist and pass through your spine into your shoulder and then finally be uh, manifested in your hands. And, and to do so, you have to consciously feel that um, you know, that push going forward through each of your muscles. And, and you, you, you will start to feel them you know, after a while that there are small muscles that you never thought you had. And, and now you have to activate them. And now your mind has to go there and make them do something. Um, while if you only you know, spend half a second to, uh, to pick up something, then you, you're not controlling anything. You, you know, tend to use the usual muscles, the, the easy one that you always use. And that's sort of like you know, it's a parallel to to the people that only you you know that always do the same things and and are very specialized uh, into something in particular that they will only they they will always be in that space. You will always do that thing rather than uh, you know discover something new even in your body. And, and Tai Chi you know gives you the time and and the patience, especially to uh, 
explore this part in your in your movements in your body so what's the coding equivalent i mean i know we have <laughs> we have katas right but i i can't think of a i mean maybe i'm just not aware of it but i can't think of a practice that is i'm going to do something that i would do in ordinarily when programming but i'm going to do it very very slowly i don't even know if that's the right transformation is there do we have something like tai chi for coding uh, i would love to find out but i, I think uh tai chi is very it is a very bodily experience mm. uh, i you know that there's lesson you know now a, a word like mindfulness you see it everywhere you know, there, are, there are lessons about mindfulness we all want to be more mindful which is basically just keep your mind there in the present into you know where you are doing stuff, you keep your mind there rather than uh, start to think about something else. You know, they do uh, mindful, uh, I don't know, tasting of grapes where they take half an hour to taste one grape. And I find, you know, that, that, that could be interesting, but uh, Tai Chi is, you know, for me, is too much linked to, to the body and really getting in, you know, in touch on how your body feels and how you control um, your body which you know normally is just a vessel for you to you know go from home to work through you know from work to you know your social events or whatever but instead like really inhabiting and living your body and making it your rather than just you know something that carries you around uh so i'll think about it a little bit more if there could be a coding equivalent but i don't think um, I don't think it can just be a mind exercise. It needs to be. Now you, you need to sweat <laughs> in some sort of way to do to to get the benefits of Tai Chi. Fair enough. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, as so often happens, we have um, sort of come to the end of the show, and our and, and at the end of the show, we ask our guest to share a bit of advice. And it's so funny how often we end on something that could that basically is advice. And I think your your comments there at the end are, are close. But I will still ask you nonetheless. Uh, to share with us a piece of advice for our for our audience to take away, uh, what advice would you like to share? I I think I can give an advice sort of in line with what I was saying before, and I think that is you know, if if you like to be a you know like if if you like to improve your coding, then I will advise you to move more. <laughs> so you know sort of. Uh, a parallel with the hammock-driven development, but instead of lying down, uh, I will advise people to to go for for a run. And I know it sounds, you know, it, it sounds a very simple advice. It's like you know, uh, eat more vegetables or uh, cover yourself up when it, you know, when it's cold. But uh, it's amazing how interconnected is your thinking process to your uh, to you know, the way you move your body and how much you. Uh, you exercise, and uh, I think you know. Lately, we we have this separation between the the mind process and how the brain works and how the body works. But I think in uh, in in Asia, you know, in the more holistic way of uh, uh, seeing ourselves, it's all interconnected. So to have a sharper thinking, uh, I think it's advisable to go out for a run rather than reading. One more book and doing one more coding exercise. Yeah, I can't tell you how many uh, how many times I've managed to accomplish a critical piece of a design on a thing that I was doing, a thing that was super important to the end product, while I was not in front of the keyboard. And, and typically, the two places that happens are when I'm running or when I'm showering. <laughs> so yeah, one of those. That's great advice. I like it a lot. Uh, well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to to hang out with us today. When I asked the the organizer over at Jux who'd have on, like I said, they they said, well, I th we think we have any number of people. It'd be great, but Frankie's certainly one of them, and I, I was not disappointed. They were absolutely correct. It was really interesting to speak with you about um, these many interesting topics. Um, I have definitely um, come away with some new thoughts myself about, um, you know, how to just really think more about how I can spread myself around the team both in the sense of absorbing knowledge but also in diffusing it that was just one of the many cool things we talked about so thanks a ton for coming on today and talking oh, thanks, to us <laughs> it's really been a pleasure uh, likewise so we will go ahead and close it down there um this has been the cognicast
have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc. Cognitech are the makers of Datomic, and we provide consulting services around it, closure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Frankie Sardo on Twitter at Frankie Sardo, F-R-A-N-K-I-E-S-A-R-D-O. Episode cover art is by Michael Parenteau. Audio production by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 